Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, I think you found the right show, and I'm sure glad you're here. Today's episode really is a great story of collaboration, of public-private partnerships, of innovation, and of sustainability. But before I introduce you to today's guest, let me set the scene for you here a little bit. A group of 15 dairies in the Central Valley of California are getting paid to turn their cow manure into renewable fuel. 12 of these dairies are connected via an underground pipeline that transports biogas from on-farm digesters to a centralized conditioning facility, which processes and markets the fuel. So the dairies not only receive a milk check, they also receive a manure check. All the while, they're drastically reducing their own emissions and replacing 3 million gallons of fossil fuel diesel with near-zero emissions from dairy-sourced renewable compressed natural gas, or CNG. This project is a collaboration between a lot of people, including the local dairy farmers, Calgren Dairy Fuels, which is a renewable energy company, and Moss Energy Works, which makes the digesters. So joining me today to talk about this innovative project is Lyle Schleier, president of Calgren Renewable Fuels, and Daryl Moss, CEO of Moss Energy Works. I also want to recognize that this project was nominated by the California Milk Advisory Board for a U.S. Dairy Sustainability Award. In fact, they won that award for their socially responsible, economically viable, and environmentally sound impacts on their community. The California Milk Advisory Board brought this incredible story to my attention and was willing to partner with me on today's episode to share it with you. If you're not familiar with the CMAB, they're an instrumentality of the California Department of Food and Agriculture with a vision of nourishing the world with the wholesome goodness of real California milk. They're very proud of the fact that dairy farm families in the state have made tremendous progress in reducing their environmental footprint while producing nutritious, planet-smart dairy products and becoming world leaders in sustainable farming. Thank you very much to the California Milk Advisory Board for bringing this story to my attention and for partnering with me on today's episode. So now on to our featured conversation with Lyle Schleier of Calgren Renewable Fuels and Daryl Moss of Moss Energy Works. The first part of our conversation will focus more on how this project meets economic needs of dairy producers, and then the second part will be more about the overall sustainability impacts of this system. It's pretty cool. Daryl's going to start our conversation by giving us some basic background on what a dairy digester does. Well, basically, a digester is just a vessel that tries to simulate what's happening inside a cow. So a cow uh, has a bunch of bacteria that gradually break down calories and, and uh, make gas in the process. That's what a digester is. So as a practical matter, uh, in California, what we do is we build a large tarp, a gas tarp tarp over a pond of manure. So if you can imagine several acres of liquid manure sitting there, uh, which is something we imagine all the time here, we love these topics. If you were to put a gas tight seal over the top of it, the bacteria in that manure, they think they're still in a cow. They continue breaking down the little bits of calories and releasing methane gas, which we can capture. And then we've got a, a collection of biomethane, which is mostly methane gas, which is the same energy as natural gas. That's a model that's worked really well, and it's worked real well in part because of the partnership we've built with Calgren. Up until 10 years ago, even five years ago, a lot of digesters had struggled in California and elsewhere. They didn't have a strong revenue model. They were often undercapitalized or not maintained well. 
just the technology was overly complex, but a covered lagoon in the Tulare County, California is about the simplest digester you can imagine. It runs on gravity, it runs on ambient temperature. And in the case of Calgren, we had a partner that you know was used to operating fuel facilities 24 hours a day, making use of varieties of different types of energy. And so this really, uh, it wasn't the only one of its type, but it was the first real demonstration of uh, building these digesters at scale, well-capitalized, well-operated, and then being able to expand. And so this, uh, at least in the Southern United States, is the dominant model, is the covered lagoon digester. And Lyle, it sounds like the, the technology is there. What about the economics piece of it? How have you figured out the economics basically to literally turn poop into money? Well, it's amazing. Right now is, is the perfect time to, to do these projects, Tim. We are responding to federal incentives under the renewable fuel standard. If you want to get real technical, we, we make a cellulosic RIN, renewable identification number, which we can then sell to obligated parties under the renewable fuel standard. These cellulosic RINs are priced off a formula called a cellulosic waiver credit. Then these are, these are worth something. So that's the federal program. And then California has a very innovative low carbon fuel standard, which has started to take hold in other states in the West. Oregon has a similar program now. State of Washington ad adopted one. It's, it's not come into fruition yet. And it's being talked about on the East Coast and in the upper Midwest as well. We just happen to be in, in the right place at the right time, Tim. Oh, that's fantastic. It, it, so through Daryl's digester, you're able to capture this. And is it methane you're capturing at the lagoon? And how are you getting it from there into the uh, fuel supply chain? A lot of pipe. What we do in terms of uh, sort of the logistics, and Daryl's company still runs most of the digester stuff, and we do the cleanup, as, as Daryl implied earlier, and then we inject that biomethane. We make a, a pipeline quality, natural gas, essentially, methane, and inject it into the local pipeline. For us, that's the local utility is uh, SoCal Gas. But we... Uh, we currently have 11 digesters online, and we're Daryl and his folks are building out a number of additional digesters. So by the time we're done here, we'll have uh, easily over 20 that are connected by a gathering pipeline. This is a low-pressure pipeline. The folks in Tulare County have been, I would say, farsighted, but certainly cooperative in terms of... Uh, their willingness to allow us to use pipeline, county road rights of way, as if this was a, a utility. It really is a utility of a sort, especially in a, a dairy county like Tulare. And we use very low pressure blowers, uh, maximum 15 pounds, to push the biogas through a gathering line system to our centralized cleanup hub which is our uh, sort of renewable fuel process facility there at Pixley. And then we clean it up on site. It's primarily methane and CO2, though there are some other materials in there that we have to address. Not as many as landfill gas, Tim. It's funny to say, but uh, biogas from manure is pretty clean. We remove the CO2, 
and inject it in the common carrier pipeline and transport it to uh, CNG refueling facilities around the state. Very cool. And Daryl, how does that conversation look between you and a producer when you're saying, okay, this producer, I would imagine, has to be close enough that logistically we could get them a gathering pipeline to the facility. What's the conversation look like between you and them as far as why they might want to consider joining up? Sure. Well, it depends on what year you're talking about. If you're talking about 2016, when Lyle and I first started approaching the, the neighborhood dairy farmers, they said, that's never going to work. Uh, these digesters, they're all pie in the sky and uh, you guys are crazy. Now, they didn't all say that, obviously, but uh, certainly there had been some hard-won lessons in Tulare County in particular, which has been targeted over the years by a variety of developers, You know, some of which didn't perform as they promised. So producers took their time. But uh, over time, we signed up the first five or six dairies and then we, we stacked miles and miles of pipe everywhere. And that seemed to uh, convince people that this was for real. So now when we go around and, you know, that there are many producers that have participated in the program and are, and are being paid every month. Uh, so they get a milk check and then they effectively get a manure check from Calgary Dairy Fuels. And that doesn't hurt. So now mostly the conversation is about uh, the location of the dairy is very critical. As we build out this pipeline network, it's centered on the Calgary refinery, but then it goes north, east, southwest, pretty much all directions. And we just keep incrementally adding to the nearby dairies. And every time you extend the pipeline, well, then you have more dairies. So we're limited in geography, but we, we now go, you know, eight or nine miles west, I guess, and three or four east. So it's a pretty large chunk of land that's possible. And let's talk about that investment. So what is this upfront investment and what is kind of the result, the return on that investment? Well, uh, the, the model Calgary Dairy Fields uses is, is we have digesters producing raw gas on the dairy farms and then a low-pressure pipeline bringing that gas back to the central cleanup facility. And the cleanup facility is where the really big, complicated, expensive equipment is. So one of the things that allows us to do is, is keep the complexity and the cost on the dairy a little lower. It's still fairly expensive because out here in California, you can't just dig a new pond in the dirt. You have to put down double liners with uh, leak detection and you know watertight membranes and all these other things. So a new pond that meets all the latest environmental requirements here costs us in the neighborhood of a million and a half, two million dollars, something like that on an average size dairy. And for this group, an average size dairy would be between 2,000 and 4,000 milking cows, something like that. So it's, it's about $2 million of, of pond plus some of the gas processing equipment. And, and so we're, we're typically investing in the neighborhood of $3 million on the dairy, depending on what's already at the dairy and, and, and what upgrades need to be made. And what's the result of that? You know, maybe walk us through the before and after from a dairy point of view. What are they doing with their manure before? And then what's happening after? Is this taking all of their manure? And what can they expect in terms of like what's required of them up front and what they're going to get back for it? Yeah, that's a great question. And that really is the key, I think, to this project's success is we ask the minimal amount of changes on the dairy. Uh, there are digester models where a developer will come in and say, I need you to change your whole dairy around. We're going to change all your practices and we're going to change all your nutrient management and all that. We don't do hardly any of that. These dairies are flush dairies. And in almost every case, we leave things the way they are, which is that the dairy uh, has a gravity flush through the barns, and then they'll have some sort of solids removal, either gravity solids removal 
or mechanical solids removal. One way or another, they remove the solids and the liquid normally would gravity flow into a pond. But we just say, before you flow into your storage pond, we'd like it to flow into our pond first. And if we do our job right, that's all gravity. So it comes off of, say, a mechanical separator, gravity flows into our pond, then gravity flows into their storage pond, just like before. And so they have not had to change their flushing cycles. They have not had to change their solids removal. They've not had to change their storage and irrigation practices. And they get their manure back. And so the manure doesn't go anywhere. It just passes through this pond for maybe 30 to 60 days before it finally flows into their storage. So we're really just borrowing the manure for a month or three and uh, processing the gas so that we can get the gas out, which is carbon and hydrogen. But everything the farmer needs, which is the water for irrigation, the nitrogen, the phosphorus for fertilizer, those all stay there. And so uh, very few things change in the dairy. In some colder climates, you may have to be more aggressive. But in California, we've got this climate and these manure practices that work very well with a, a liquid digester like this. The other thing I would add to what Daryl said, Tim, is that uh, we are, uh, at least in our initial model, we're looking for the dairy to pay absolutely nothing for this. We write checks to them, not the other way around. I think Daryl's exactly right. That That's what let us get started here. And now we are adding some dairies where the dairy operators wanted to take that financial risk and wanted to build a digester. We can accommodate that model as well, but it's not where we started and it's not what sort of got us where we are today. So I, I'm sure you get this a lot the, where the dairy producer will, would say, you know, wait a minute, at no cost to me, you're going to put this thing out here and just start sending me checks. I mean, is it that simple or kind of what's the catch, I guess, is the question. <laughs> you know, there is a lot of value in cow gas right now. The regulated market here in California has a demand on low carbon gas, and even the voluntary market outside of California has some incentive and people are interested in supplying you know, green gas for a variety of uses. So there is a lot of upside to these projects, and, and we, we believe everybody can win if you do them right, if you don't make them too complicated, too expensive, too legally complex. And so uh, it really is that simple. I mean, some farmers, for example, we typically want a farmer to have a mechanical separator. So if somebody has been relying on a lot of gravity separation ponds, we may ask them to change that. And so that's a bit of a downside for people that don't like taking care of mechanical separators. Now, in general, that's the direction the industry is going. And we provide the mechanical separator free of charge to them. But if you're looking for a downside, there's a few producers that would prefer not to run a mechanical separator. Uh, you know, obviously you have someone else on your dairy, but we do everything possible to have a low impact on the dairy. And we're not there very often. Our troops are there a couple times a week. So, no, I mean, the producers have very little downside. I don't know that you could find much downside at all for a project like this. Obviously, Calgren keeps the majority of the return, but the farmer makes a very good return for no investment. And it really is that simple. Any dairy producer that might be listening to this in the United States, if they've got more than a couple thousand cows, probably knows that they're getting calls from all kinds of developers right now. People trying to uh, say, hey, sign up with my program. And I think Calgren did a great job being the first one, or really the second in the country. There was a facility in Indiana, uh, in Fair Oaks, that did a similar group project uh, just before Calgren. But I think they did a great job of building a model that's fair and simple. We have the right climate and the right dairies. As projects become more complex, then those arrangements get more difficult. So in some cases, the dairy farmer I know in other projects is required to guarantee a certain amount of manure. 
So the owner will say, you have to tell me you're going to be in business for 20 years. And if you aren't in business for 20 years as a dairy farm, then you're going to owe me money. And those conversations, I would imagine, you know, they have some downside for the producer. Uh, Calgren has not needed to do that because of the way they're structured. So uh, it, it really has been a great deal. And I think that's why they've been so successful. Essentially, you know, every dairy within range that is a good candidate has more or less, I think almost without exception, chosen to sign up with Calgren Dairy Fuels in, in this area. That's great. And I, I imagine just like the milk check, the manure check also fluctuates just based on commodity prices of, of the output. Is that right? Are they just getting a percentage of kind of where the market is, Lyle? It fluctuates a little bit. So the way we structured those payments the first couple of years, because we're putting in all the cash, the payments to those, uh, those dairy participants aren't as large. But after a couple of years, they bump up to fairly substantial. Now we have keyed them off of the uh, value of carbon credits under the California's low carbon fuel standard, which I mentioned earlier, that sort of thing. So yes, it varies a little bit, just like the milk check does. But the low carbon fuel standard has been fairly, uh, fairly steady. <laughs> when we first started this project, we were... Uh, targeting a level for that low carbon fuel standard carbon credit price that was half of what it's been uh, here at its lowest in the last uh, 18 months or so, maybe two years. We're real pleased and, and pleased to be able to write bigger checks to our dairy participants as well. And the reason that Daryl said, you know, more and more dairy farmers are getting calls from these developers that are coming in and wanting to do something like this is because of the funds available, I imagine, from both state and federal governments, as well as, you know, through the renewable fuel standard. Is that right? You know, I, I think that's fair, but I'd like to distinguish between funds available from those entities and programs that they've set up that create incentives. Maybe that's a distinction without a difference to a lot of folks, but, but I think it's important. California's low carbon fuel standard, for example, was crafted to try to address the reduction in carbon for vehicle fuel in California. I keep hearing this this term these days, decarbonizing fuel and decarbonizing other uh, other fuel sources. The LCFS is designed to decarbonize vehicle fuel in California. And it gauged the success of that program by looking at the life cycle carbon intensity. We get credit when we use this particular biomethane as CNG we get credit for having avoided those methane emissions that would have otherwise occurred. That's huge. That's the sort of incentive that Daryl was referring to. Other people take a look at those numbers and say, gosh, I want to get involved too. But uh, I think Daryl's right. We tried to get out there with a fair program early on in a very dairy dense uh, area where, uh, where we thought it was a viable project. We got lucky. We've got plenty of capacity to inject the biomethane into the, the local pipeline. We didn't have to go, you know, 10 miles to do that pipeline injection. A lot of things fell in place for us, but I think that 
The main key here is that these are programs that the federal renewable fuel standard is the same. What they do is they create an obligation for fossil fuel producers, you know, petroleum companies, to uh, reduce their carbon intensity via buying these cellulosic uh, RINs that I mentioned earlier or LCFS carbon credits. So we're we're selling them to uh, obligated parties, and those obligated parties are uh, more or less incentivized to reduce their carbon intensity as well. In the long run, I, I think it's a, a real nice approach to a program. Rather than the government writing checks and trying to pick winners and losers, they're allowing innovative guys like Daryl to come to guys like us and figure out a way to get the job done. I think it's a nice marriage of kind of government and business to achieve some objectives that are awfully important these days. Absolutely. Yeah. And to me, I mean, what makes this work is, you know, not just the environment we're in with the incentives that are out there, but also the fact that, you know, Daryl, you had the technology and Lyle, you had the infrastructure and you were willing to work together to kind of push this through. I mean, I would think that that combination is really unique. But I do want to talk more about, you know, I like that we've started talking about the economics here, you know, like what's this doing for a dairy producer? What are they investing? And what are they returning? But I do want to spend some time here understanding the sustainability story, specifically like why is what we're doing net good for dairy and net good for the planet, for lack of a better term here. So maybe if you could kind of frame up our thinking there from a high level of like, I think we understand that we're taking methane, which my understanding is, you know, one of the worst greenhouse gases that we want to keep out of the atmosphere and instead moving that into the fuel system. But maybe talk about both the savings on the dairy side and why this is better to use in our vehicles than maybe alternatives. In terms of methane, you're absolutely right that methane emissions under the calculation model that's used for the low carbon fuel standard. It's called the GREET model. It was developed by some federal folks at, at EPA originally, Argonne Lab folks. It characterizes methane as 25 times worse than CO2. And uh, California has some legislation as well that uh, characterizes it as a uh, short-term climate pollutant. doesn't last as long as CO2, but uh, has a very big impact short term. So if you want to address greenhouse gases, climate change, you got to hit the heavy hitters. And that's one way to do it. Animals produce methane. It's uh, biomanure and uh, burps and all that sort of stuff. We are trying to reduce that. When you look at the overall goal of climate change, it's to avoid having to pull fossil fuels out of the ground. In a way, they're storing carbon. They've been storing carbon for millions of years. So to take that out of storage and put it in the air, yeah, it's going to have some impacts. If we can use the, uh, the plant life we have that hasn't been stored, but frankly, I think renewable fuels are a storage mechanism. We compete, in my view, very well with uh, 
wind and solar electricity, which needs a battery storage. And, you know, that creates its own sort of problems. Hard to fly an airplane with that heavy uh, battery that's required right now for electricity. Far better to fuel that plane with a higher BTU density, an energy density fuel, like Avgas or something like that, that folks like us can make. Or to fuel uh, trucks running up and down the Central Valley with CNG as opposed to diesel, which is sort of what we're doing and trying to get the credit for that. You call it a closed loop if you want it. The dairy guys are producing a manure. And by the way, that's the third leg of the three-legged stool. You mentioned Daryl and what we do as a renewable fuel producer. But the dairy, the manure supplier is exceedingly important in that overall equation. But in a way, what we're doing is taking their manure, turning it into a fuel so that they can get their milk to market. It's pretty cool. Well, I would just say that what makes dairy digesters so unique as a renewable fuel production method is we are making a fuel that's green, you know. So when we when we make this methane gas, somebody else doesn't have to dig oil or natural gas out of the ground. But we get kind of a double benefit because it just happens that the renewable fuel we're making, uh, biomethane, if we weren't making it, would be escaping into the atmosphere as a greenhouse gas. And so uh, we essentially get double credit under these systems. We're making new energy where there didn't used to be energy, and we're reducing atmospheric emissions of methane gas, uh, which as Lyle pointed out is a greenhouse gas that's uh, very potent. And so digesters kind of have this unique ability to make energy and create environmental credits. So that makes them, you know, financially worth building, even though they're somewhat complex to build and somewhat custom to build. And it makes them environmentally create a lot of benefits. Uh, you know, putting up wind turbines or, or solar, yes, you make energy, but you're not getting this additional benefit of capturing methane emissions that would otherwise occur in the absence of the project. And that's what, that's what makes these things so special. Is it feasible or, or possible to achieve kind of carbon neutrality at the dairy level? That is a big topic of conversation in our industry because a lot of the uh, milk processors have set that as a goal. And like every industry, uh, it's possible, but it really depends on what you mean by carbon neutrality. So, uh, you know, farming, uh, it creates a lot of emissions because it uses energy and livestock. But then again, farming captures a lot of CO2 by growing crops. And so I'm not an expert on how the consultants uh, spec these things. I can tell you that in the methane world, you know, we create uh, significant reductions from baseline practices. So one cow's manure, if you put it in a dairy digester, creates about four to five tons of CO2 equivalent reductions in greenhouse gases. So uh, one cow, five tons, which is roughly the same as one cow equals one car. Uh, so if you have a digester, uh, uh, many of the Calgary digesters, maybe 3,000 cows on a dairy, that's like removing 3,000 cars from the road in greenhouse gas emissions terms. And uh, that's a pretty impressive number when you get tens of thousands of cows, as this facility has done. There's a lot of effort to try to look at the entire life cycle of a cow and the entire life cycle of an animal. And uh, we do a very good job of reducing the emissions of manure. But cows also create methane emissions just by walking around and releasing methane gases. And so that's a very complex issue that the dairy industry is trying to be a leader and I think is doing quite well. Uh, it's gone a long ways from 10 years ago 
when we started talking about methane emissions on dairies and, and nobody wanted to hear about it, uh, to the industry has really realized that you know, this is an important part of their branding and they're doing a really good job at it. Uh, California dairy cows in particular and U.S. dairy cows in general are very efficient in their use of land and their use of water and their use of feed. And so they're actually very environmentally sustainable compared to other ways of producing protein and fat and all the other things we do. So it's a good story and it requires a lot of folks working together to achieve it. Lyle, I want to talk about carbon intensity and I guess low carbon fuels, because essentially that's sort of the gold here, right? Is that we're not only removing this methane from the atmosphere, which is one win, but the second win is that we're producing a fuel that's actually low carbon. And my understanding is it's got a lower carbon intensity score, or maybe it's a higher score. I'm not sure how the scores work than even electric cars. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's because of what Daryl mentioned, we're avoiding methane emissions. So what's getting burned is the methane that otherwise would have been released to the atmosphere. It is a double credit, and that double credit shows up in our carbon intensity score. I think the important thing is that it's grams of pollutant turned into something that you can compare apples to apples at CO2, divided by the energy intensity of the fuel, more or less. So all the fuels get tagged with the same energy and the emissions. That's the attempt of these greenhouse gases. So gasoline and diesel, they tend to be about 100 grams of CO2 equivalent per megajoule. So a CI score of 100. The fuel ethanol that we produce, we're pretty efficient, so we're down around 60. Pretty substantial savings. Biodiesel depends on what it's made from, but if it's made from used cooking oil, it's about 20. If it's made from uh, tallow, it's about 45 rendered tallow because there's some energy involved in that. But Landfill gases are down around 20 or, or so on that scale. Dairy digester gases, depending upon how the digester is configured and depending upon how much energy, can be minus 400. They're not all that good, but, but they can be pretty good. And frankly, the more, more efficient the digester is, its carbon intensity gets a little less impressive because the the methane emissions get spread over more volume. So, so it gets a little complicated. So I, I don't get too impressed by just what the number is. Tim, you asked about uh, electric vehicles, but as Lyle's saying, it all goes back to what's the feedstock you use to produce your electricity. So if you're you know, using a standard conventional mix in California, which has a lot of wind and solar, but it also has you know, natural gas and other feedstocks, I think it's around an 80 right now is uh, you know, grid power in California. And if you say, well, I'm going to use solar power to charge my Tesla, which is kind of ultimately the model, now you're at about a zero score. You know, that's about the lowest you can get. If, you know, there's probably it's a little bit above zero due to some you know, processing losses and transmission. But theoretically, that's the lowest you could go with solar. But with, uh, with dairy gas, because we have that additional subtraction of atmospheric emissions, that's how we get to be negative. I could see the stickers now powered by dairy on, uh, you know, all of the uh, the clean vehicles out there. Well, actually, the uh, compressed natural gas fleet in California is already almost 100 percent running on renewable fuel 
because of some of these incentive programs Lyle has talked about. Now, the majority of that is landfill gas from out of state because that's the most plentiful supply of renewable natural gas. But if you're riding a, you know, the shuttle bus to your get your rental car or you uh, see a garbage truck go by or a school bus, a lot of those in California are running on compressed natural gas. And that's pretty much all renewable fuel. The fraction of that that is dairy gas is climbing rapidly as Calgary Dairy Fuels and other people figure out how to supply CNG into the market. It's probably in the neighborhood of 20% right now and climbing rapidly uh, as more people find ways to get gas into the pipeline. It's hard to scale dairy gas. We can't make billions and billions of cubic feet like some other industries can. So it comes in in smaller chunks. But uh, as it arrives in the market, it goes straight into that transportation fuel market. And uh, the day is probably not too far off when the majority of CNG vehicles in California will run on cow gas. It's amazing. And to state the obvious, but I don't want it to be lost, is this is all a byproduct of producing our food, right? It's an important story that goes along with the obvious benefit of also, you know, the food that's being produced here. So it's it's really incredible. I imagine, Lyle, that that this conversation of low carbon fuel stock it's going to become more and more prevalent as opposed to just renewable fuel. Let's also find a renewable fuel that's low in carbon fuel stock. Am I thinking about that correctly? You are. I think the fossil fuel guys, the petroleum guys, have pretty much all now felt the need to make commitments, spend some money on renewable fuels. There's a number of things that can be done, Tim. Once you open the the doors and uh, and get everybody on the same page. Dairy has a unique place. Daryl mentioned it. Uh, you touched upon it. Landfill gases. Uh, it's pretty hard now to take that food that dairy helped provide and dispose of it without having to think about its implications, which is that it makes methane. In a way, we compete with those landfill gases but we capture it early, <laughs> you know, as it's being produced. There are benefits to all of these approaches. We think that the benefits to capturing the, the methane that would have come from dairy manure, it's something that, that can't be overlooked if, if you want to have long-term solutions. Daryl, anything to add about kind of where this is all going? What's What the potential is here? We like to think, you know, in terms of number of dairies, which, you know, as, as we've said, we, we think will be north of 20, perhaps 30 in this group. Uh, if you want to think of it in terms of energy, uh, we sometimes convert everything into diesel gallon equivalents. Now, we're not making diesel. We're making compressed natural gas, which is a substitute for diesel. But Calgren's size, they're, you know, in the three to four million gallons of diesel a year. And it could easily grow, as Lyle said, to, uh, you know, even double that, depending on, on how much additional gas gets brought in. So, you think of how many tankers full of diesel it is, that's that's a lot of energy from just cows, from cow waste. So as far as where it's going, uh, we think that, you know, California, it looks very likely that the majority of large dairies in California, say above 2,000 or 2,500 milk cows, probably will have digesters within the next decade if the market stays the way it is. This demonstration at Calgary Dairy Fuels kind of shows it can be done and it shows how to do it. And anywhere where there's relatively large dairies, it makes sense to build these. It's a little harder on the smaller and more isolated dairies. Uh, we hope to get to as many of those as we can too. Uh, we keep looking for ways to be cheaper, smaller, faster, 
and uh, make things economically feasible on a more, uh, you know, 1,000, 2,000 cow dairy. Outside of California, there's also a lot of development because you are allowed to build the digester outside of California and send your gas into California. And as Lau mentioned earlier, other states are creating programs. So I think the combination between mandatory regulation in some states and uh, voluntary industry targets for marketing and, and other sustainability goals between both of those, it seems that dairy farms in the U.S., at least uh, the larger ones, are going to have some form of biogas project uh, in the majority of cases. It really seems likely, given the market we're in and given the fact that dairies are such a great opportunity. They're, they have a concentrated source of feedstock. You know, there are other businesses, say the biodiesel industry, which goes around collecting grease and collecting oil and trying to gather it and transport it. But a dairy is sitting right there. It's got all this feedstock there every day, 12 months out of the year that can be made into energy. So those of us in the industry are just trying to find ways to do that more efficiently and reach out to more producers and build business models that work for them. Great, guys. Thank you so much for this. Anything that we didn't get to that you think is a really important part of this project we need to at least mention or something we glossed over that you know we should go back to and, and go deeper on? The only thing I would add at all, Tim, is just the importance of our dairy partners here. As far as I'm concerned, those are the real environmental heroes in, in this story. Government money isn't being spent on helping folks in Beverly Hills buy Teslas that will sit in their garage. This is the Central Valley of California in terms of our project, where the air isn't quite as good and the employment prospects aren't quite as good. So, so we're bringing jobs and clean air to areas, frankly, where I think it's needed most. So uh, I don't mind closing on that statement. And a great statement to close on. Thank you so very much to both Lyle and Daryl for sharing this story on today's show. With so much out there about climate smart agriculture, it's really great to be able to see a real story of something that has both significant environmental impacts as well as economic impacts for dairy producers. If you'd like to learn more about Calgren, Moss Energy and this project, we'll make sure we provide some links in the show notes for you to go and check out. Thanks as well to the California Milk Advisory Board for making today's episode possible. To learn more about their vision of nourishing the world with the wholesome goodness of Real California Milk, visit their website, realcaliforniamilk.com. Last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I never take it for granted. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. 